right, well, we are going to get started. Uh, my name is Holly Freitas, and I um, am a full-time missionary leave, living in Tanzania, East Africa. Um, a lot of the work that I do is with the Maasai people, and I'm going to share with you today about how uh, we use media to help the Maasai people teach themselves. Um, this is one example. I'm sure that there are others. Um, and um, I'm excited to be here today. It's a little different. I've changed cultures completely. Um, I don't usually wear shoes, um, and I don't usually dress like this, but um, it's interesting when you tra- change cultures and you come to, like, a media thing um, and do an academic presentation and uh, what a difference in, um, in venue it is from my normal place. Um, I work with uh, Maasai people, like I said, in Tanzania, and um, there was a tremendous need, and... Um, so we, we set about to, to meet them. As you know, media is becoming more and more available around the world. And uh, it is well documented that media is an effective tool in health education. And again, becoming more so. It's really helpful in low literacy areas where um, folks are not able to read for themselves to be able to read the health information. And it's very appropriate um, in, in our area of Maasai land, they love cinema. They love cinema. As a matter of fact, they would watch cinema all night long while I'm trying to sleep um, if the cinema is out. And so they love it. Um, it comes in many different um, forms, media does, and radio, television, video, public broadcasts, etc. And what I'm here to talk about is how media can be used to help communities teach themselves, to educate themselves. The example that I'm using is a video that we use with a Maasai. It's called The Fire is Coming, and it is a program to help the community um, to educate themselves. And I'll give you some background information. Um, The setting, there's about um, 250 to 800,000 Maasai in Tanzania. You say, why do you have such a huge range? Well, that's because the people groups are not counted in the census. And so we don't really know how many Maasai people there are. And statistically, that causes us not to be able to measure HIV rates among them as well. So we have to go with um, subjective and guesses about some of the things. Um, but we're guessing that the Maasai people make about about 3% of the Tanzanian population. As you see, um, about half of them are south uh, of the border, and they're in Tanzania. And there's another half of Maasai that are up in Kenya. And so there are about a million Maasai altogether, or more. Um, the Tanzanian HIV rates are estimated to be between 5.7 and 7.5%. Again, I guess, how do you measure that in a population that you're not measuring and asking the right questions? And all of the, all of the statistical material is done in Swahili. All the interviews are done in Swahili. And Maasai people, um, as you'll see later, have a tremendous um, non-Swahili speaking rate. And so they're missing out even in being in the statistics. Um, there is evidences that the HIV rate in Maasai land is very high, um, especially in some circles and in some communities. And we know because of the high-risk um, 
behaviors that are common among the Maasai people that their HIV rates are quite high, even though we're not able to measure them well. So the language and the cultural and remote geographical distribution keep um, indigenous peoples all around the world from receiving health care and health education messages, including HIV prevention messages. Um, and in Tanzania, national legislation prohibits anything to be transmitted in anything other than Swahili or English. So people out in the, out in the rural villages are not receiving any of the health education. Um, resistance to nationalization um, for Maasai people has caused them to be marginalized. Um, people think they're stupid. People think they, you know, just don't want to be like us. They um, don't want to participate. And if they're not going to participate, we're not going to help them. And that's a lot of the attitude of, um, and so they end up being very marginalized. Um, and at the time of um, this uh, program, no educational materials were available in the Maasai language or adapted to Maasai lifestyles in Tanzania. And traditional practices combined with their rural-urban migration, which basically means people were going to the city to work and then coming back to the village um, for their living activities, for their um, cultural activities, but then going back and living in 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 the uh, rural or the urban areas in the city um, in very difficult living situations put the HIV people at tremendous risk for infection. In um, 2006 to 2007 is when this work began um, and a small area of Sumanjuro, which is one of the districts in um, Tanzania, um, where there was a group of Maasai who recognized and saw they became believers and they started to recognize risk to their people and they wanted to protect their people from HIV and they came begging. Um, how are they going to do this? How are we going to do this to help our people? Well, there was a short and intensive HIV training. Here's the first HIV training um, with 16 young men um, who would not let me leave until they learned about HIV. They, I'd come for something else, and they heard that I was an HIV educator, and they said, you will not leave. Please, please, please teach us about HIV. And I said, well, I'm just a little white girl. And they said, we don't care. You're going to teach us about HIV before you leave this place. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Okay, Lord, I'll do it. And um, it was a turning point in my life, a turning point in their lives. Um, we used, I used stories God gave me. It's a surreal, it was a surreal experience because I didn't, I, I've done HIV education. Here were some warriors and I, um, I did an exercise with them. It was a handshaking exercise where a, a, um, a special handshake is given to two people in the group and everybody has to shake five hands. And if you receive a special handshake, you have to give the special handshake to the other five people, other people who you're shaking their hands. At the very end of this session, I hope that makes some sense to you, so that it's a um, how you pass. At the end of this session, these young warriors who had um, been there, and we've been talking about this, um, they stood there and I said, well, how many sexual partners do warriors have? They have one. 
How about three? What about five? And they hung their heads because all but one had received the special handshake. He said, well, how many? And they said, Wangi, many, many, many. And in silence, they hung their heads. And I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, we don't know. But we're going to go home and talk about it. So they left that night. And, and um, the next day, so I said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And I uh, hadn't given them answers. Their first head question had been, tell us what to do. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I know what I have to do. I know how to HIV is transmitted. I can tell you how HIV is transmitted. But you have to decide what you're going to do. So I gave them that education, and then we did the handshake, and then they off, off they went, and they come back the next day. And I know one of the um, principles of good teaching is to help people to be motivated themselves, and I let them sweat. I let them sweat all day long. And I went and had tea, and I said, well, I'll see you this evening. And by the time I got back to them, they were like, ah, we have to tell you what we're going to do. And so the leader um, who was responsible and the, the spokesman of the group said, we decided what we got to do. We have to be faithful to our wives. And if we're not married, we have to be alone. We have to be basically not have sexual partners because if we do anything other than this, HIV is going to wipe us out. Wow. Got to get asked for a better answer? And then I told them a story about the lost Morani that God had given me. It was a story that they already had in their culture, and I'd ask somebody, tell me a story, any story that all Maasai know. And they told a story about the lost Morani. And to make this lost Morani short, basically it's a warrior, and the warrior live in brotherhood groups of all the young boys who were circumcised together in their one brotherhood. And the story of the lost Morani is that these Maasai, this young brotherhood group, is traveling together, and one gets separated from the group. And the other group goes on, and he keeps trying to find his way back. And many things come into his life, and opportunities, and, and temptations, and he kept saying, no, no. No, no, I want to get back to the, to the good life. I want to get back to the cows and the wives and the children. I want to get back to good life. I want to have a good life. And he finally makes his way back. And all his brothers have died. And they were at this point, they were like, Ah, we're the lost Morani. And we have to tell our brothers about HIV. Well, I didn't need much more than that. And so they became impassioned to make changes to protect themselves and their families and to teach other Maasai people. Here they are again. I want you to... Oh, wait, are they? Where are they? They became impassioned. And this young group of Maasai has been working now for six years to teach their people about HIV. But how were they going to do that? They get around on foot, maybe on a motorcycle. So we began talking about how they could do that. And um, in 2006, around there, 2007, I was given an um, unsolicited grant um, for $25,000 um, to use for HIV, and that was a God thing. And I said, you know, sir, I know exactly how we're going to use this. 
And so we helped them. I helped them to develop a Maasai, a HIV education video in the Maasai language using the Maasai stories um, so that they could educate themselves about the dangers of HIV. Um, as, you'll, as you'll see, because I'm going to show you a seven-minute piece of this video that's been subtitled for you, it helps encourage them to make some cultural changes and decisions in order so that they can prevent HIV and protect people, their people, from HIV di disease and death. So let me put that in, and I'll show you the video. This is a seven-minute clip of the 33-minute video. Um, a 33-minute video on HIV would seem like very long to us, but again, remember, cinema is exciting. And when they get to have cinema, they, they run this video all night and all day and whenever they can do it because they just love to watch the video. And so a 33-minute video in Maasai and in Maasai land is not extensive. But this is just a clip of it um, that's subtitled so that you can see in here and hopefully it is all ready to play. <laughs> It's okay, I'll put it. Oh, would you turn out the lights? Does that help hear it? Like I said, this film was uh, field tested in 2009 and released for use in January of 2010. Let's see if I can get this back on here. We'd used the stories. I'd uh, tested that story of Leishabar everywhere I went with every Maasai person I ran into. And I had my guys doing that as well. And they'd say, Leishabar, in a group of, of uh, Maasai people, and everybody get the giggles. Because they all knew the, this foolish man, Leishabar, who knew then had heard that a fire was coming, and yet he did nothing. And someone else came to tell him that the fire was coming. And Maasai live on a field out where it's grass and dry and they have cows, and if you hear a fire is coming, you pick up and you move. You don't just sit there and do nothing. And so they heard this Leishabar, heard the fire is coming, and he did nothing. And again, he heard the fire was coming, and they did nothing. And eventually the fire came, and just as everyone predicted, they, the fire wiped him out. And this story was already there in the Maasai culture. And uh, everyone that we t field tested it with knew the story of Leishabar. And so um, God provided that for us to use with this video. Um, the people who spoke there were unscripted. We told them the basic background of the story and said, okay, this is what we're weaving through. And they spoke. And it was amazing what they did by themselves. So we um, trained in January 2010, trained the MOPED members, which is the organization we were working with, um, in the use of projection equipment. At that point, they were carrying around a generator, a projector thing, a DVD player, and um, lugging it all over. But for an entire year, they lugged all that stuff around um, with no outside funding um, to take it and uh, did this on their own. We developed a program protocol with guide to help the presenters in facilitating discussion afterward, leading community discussion, 
uh, Maasai community is not an individualistic community. It is a, um, a group. They have a lot of group think, and they make decisions together as a community, just as the, the warriors had done. A decision about what they're going to do, and then they decide to do it, and they do it. Um, so we've developed a, a facilitation guide, and the presenters traveled in their local area, and over a period of one year, they showed it to whoever and whenever they could, um, and other than the projection equipment, no other outside resources were given to them. Well, there were challenges to implementation. Um, one was this heavy projector generator stuff. Um, there were just a few people that were trained in technology and could manage the equipment. And I have a projector at home, the DVD, I forget what the name of that is that I used for a while that um, just was loved to death. And uh, just, you know, the, the projection equipment in, um, in the bush is um, short-lived. So that made it a challenge. That in the novelty of the video presentation, people wanted to watch videos all night, as I said, as soon as they had cinema. And the accommodation cost from the local community um, became expensive. And the further they traveled, the more expensive that, that did become for them. Um, but they continued. Well, in... Um, 2010, I um, had been working with them for about four years already and uh, decided that it was time that I go and um, get my master's in public health. And so um, I decided that one of the things that I had really wanted to do is know whether this program works. They need to know whether the program works. When we look in, in Africa at the many, many health education programs, um, in Tanzania, there is almost no follow-up in research to be able to identify whether what we're doing is actually making a difference. And um, so a tremendous need for us is, does it work? Does it make a difference? You know, we're doing all this stuff. We're putting all this money. Let's, let's do some evaluation. And so I, um, during my MPH, said, well, you know, I'm getting the tools to do an evaluation, something I've needed to do, so let's do it. So we wanted to determine whether it was, in fact, um, effective. And so we also wanted to know if it's not effective, what do we need to do to help increase the effectiveness of it? So that it was a program evaluation was done. And I was invited um, to help MAPED to do the um, evaluation necessary and had a, um, a PhD professor, one of my good friends from um, Moshi, was, provided some oversight. Um, and the data collection was done at, consecutively by four trained data collectors over a 10-day period in 2011 in May. Um, and I'm going to give you some of the results of that because um, I think that speaks for itself, whether or not the program was effective. It was collected. We did a um, – I had had previously um, seven um, knowledge, attitude, practice, um, research projects and papers that had been done in the area, and it was time to get moving on some action. Um, one of the things when you're doing good research in an area to know whether something is effective is to do a baseline study, study before, do your program, and do your evaluation study at the end. Maasai people had been studied to death. They had, had research professors, they'd had students come and all do CAP studies and do research to, f to find out what, um, what people believe, what their knowledge, attitudes, and practices were, 
and they needed some action. We had what we needed for a baseline study. And so we um, did a post-comparison study where we studied two um, communities simultaneously um, and compared demographics so that we would be able to know whether our um, study was legitimate or not. It's not the ideal way to do a study like this, but as a program evaluation, it was effective for our purposes. So um, we identified two demographically distant um, areas. One was the program area and one was a non-program area. And it was so distant that when our poor guys had to go back there, our guys that are doing the program went back there again. They're like, that's so far away. I'm like, well, that's perfect because we know nobody could get between the study area and the non-study area to contaminate our data. So the um, data collectors that we used were were people who were not familiar with this area. They all spoke Maasai. Um, the, the interviews were conducted in Maasai. But from people who were outside of the organization, they, they did not know anybody in the Moppet organization. They did not know me until I introduced and hired them to do the um, data collection. And we tried to be very careful in our um, research protocol to be sure that the, that the study information was protected. So we, um, there were 100 interviews that were collected in each area for a total of 200 interviews. And the participants were randomly selected from um, the family groupings. Um, we chose the, the program area and the non-program area, and then um, randomly chose the villages within the communities in that program area. We randomly selected those. Then we randomly selected BOMA, which is a house grouping in there, um, so that we, as much as possible, we had a um, verifiable data. The da data translation was verified in a comparison with written information and then recorded um, recordings and by university-level um, professors and students who were um, literate in both uh, Maasai, Swahili, and English so that we could verify the data. It was clean and put on SPSS. And here's some of the things that we found. Um, we really, this was really exciting to me as we look in, at the comparison areas. I'd never been to the comparison area. So whether or not we were actually going to find out that the two places were demographically similar or not um, was yet to be seen until I put it into SPSSS. SPSS. Anyway, we found that uh, pretty much we had a really close um, demographically close areas. The program areas in this um, presentation are all going to be in, um, shown in red, and the non-program areas are in blue for the most part. And as you see, we had um, the biggest difference was actually in the number of Christians in the community, and there were a greater number of people who identified them as Christians in the program area. So that could be one of the things that influences um, their answers. When we look at formal education, um, among the responses, again, very close, and yet in our program area, we find that we had more people who did not attend primary school in the program area than in the program area, and um, decreasing uh, numbers of people as we go through in um, their completion of any kind of, um, of uh, secondary or certainly tertiary education. Um, the, on the left is the um, graph showing the number of people who spoke Maasai only, um, which is the tribal language, or whether they spoke Swahili and English. Swahili, as I said, is the national language. And um, 
quite a number of people when you add um, the people who speak Maasai only and some Swahili together, just some Swahili, you find out that there's a significant num um, number in the population when you add, what, 30 and 45 percent is most of the population that is not fluent in Swahili, the national language, which means they're not getting the education messages. And we find this in other indigenous communities as well. When we looked at the marital status of the respondents, um, the Maasai tribe is historically um, polygamous, and so they have more than one wife, but again, very um, similar demographically in the two areas. Now, the, the similarities help provide us with good evidence that the data related to the HIV knowledge, attitudes, and practices in one area may be related to the HIV program in the program area and when you compare it to the non-program area. It could indicate if the program is effective in one area that it could also be effect effective in other areas as well. And unfortunately, because we don't have the direct baseline data, we aren't able to say with certainty that our program absolutely made the difference in the, in the two. And that's just a, a statistical reality and one we had to live with. Um, in basic HIV-related knowledge, we wanted the, to know whether they knew um, that having just one uninfected faithful partner can reduce the chance of getting HIV, that a knowing a healthy person, looking person can have HIV, and, rec and rejecting common myths about HIV, whether you can get it from mosquitoes, whether you can um, get it sharing um, plates with other people, whether they can reject those. And we wanted to know if they could reject the truth, the myth that Maasai people are immune to HIV. Because in the previous studies, we saw that many, many Maasai believed that they could not get HIV because they were Maasai. So this is our communities. And what we interesting in this data is that those who had heard of, had, of HIV were greater than 90%. That bodes well for the fact that the national education is getting out there somewhere they had heard about HIV. The ones in the program area, of course, it had um, that they heard from it in the community program. Again, really good news and upwards of 90, 95%, which is really great in our program area. Others, interesting government officials. Well, in Tanzania, it is mandated that every government official when he speaks in public, must mention HIV and AIDS. Hmm. I thought this was very interesting for that. Radio. Interestingly enough, in the, ra in the um, area, the uh, non-program area, there was a radio station that was community radio, and they were able to um, broadcast some in Maasai because it's community radio, and people in the community speak Maasai, and so they were able to hear more um, in the radio and Moppet is the organization we were working with. So. so here's our differences in the ability to um, name HIV transmission routes. Um, those who could not mention any, only one, it was one person in, um, in the program area and 11 in the non program area, and you can see that they were able to identify um, sexual transmission and sharing of blades. That was most common in, in the, both the program and non-program area. And interesting, in the, the non-program area was 
almost our only people who could mention three ways, mother to baby and add mother to baby, but you'll see some other interesting things with that later. HIV prevention. Greater faithfulness um, to a sexual partner in the program area was about 78% that they could name that. Rejected HIV misconceptions. This is when we're asking them um, if HIV is transmitted by mosquitoes sharing food, um, whether it can be cured, identified, whether you can identify someone with HIV by their appearance, and whether Maasai immune. Interestingly, we see that in the last several years, Maasai no longer believe that they're immune to HIV which is a very good indicator of some community education as well because previous studies showed that they believed they were immune. An interesting thing that was happening in the community at the same time as this study was done was that um, there was a, a man up in Longuito area who had a magical cure for HIV, um, and um, people were going up there in droves to take the medicine and be cured of HIV. However, there's no documentation um, that anybody who was HIV positive is no longer HIV negative after taking, um, uh, taking this medicine that, that this man had. And I believe he had a good, a good intent. He was a Christian man, um, but many people, so there was a confusion of whether HIV is curable um, because of that in the community. And, and creating actually a tremendous amount of damage as well because people who um, were taking their ARVs, many of them stopped taking antiretrovirals believing that they were cured and didn't, no longer needed to take them. And, of course, that increases the resistance um, to those medications and uh, higher viral loads, which means more spread of HIV and people died faster. Anyway, so that was going on at the time of the study as well, which... Um, changes some of the outcomes, perhaps. So we also addressed attitudes, um, whether or not um, people would accept people with HIV, attitudes towards negotiating cipher sex relationships with husbands and wives, um, attitudes towards educating youth about condoms was something actually we did not ask um, because we did not include any um, education about condoms, but you'll find something interesting in the study um, that we found at the end. Um, so we, within our definition, we also included attitudes towards vulnerability. Do Maasai consider themselves at risk for HIV? And do they believe that they can do anything to decrease HIV transmission? Like anything else in public health and in preventive medication, if you believe that you can do something, then you will do it. Whereas if you believe you can't do anything, you will not even attempt to, to make any changes. Well, this is what we found in our, from our study, that one of the remarkable differences in the two communities, what Maasai in the program areas, 87% or 87 of them believed um, that Maasai could do something to prevent HIV in the community. And this is one of our most significant and exciting factors um, they also were more willing to test for HIV. Um, I believe that was 82 versus 67% um, of the people were more willing to test. Um, other attitudes, um, this is a very significant and interesting, and that is the people in the program area or, or the non-program area were worried 
about HIV. They weren't just concerned, they were worried. Um, where in the program area, they were concerned, and some very concerned, but not as concerned. And um, they, um, that is uh, a common finding, that when in communities where they believe and they're, they're, there's nothing that they can do, people are much more concerned. They're much more worried about something that they have no control over. And so they do show, um, it is something that's found in the literature, um, Maasai are able to reduce the risk of HIV. In the program area, we have 50, I think it's 57%. Uh, our, excuse me, non-program area, 50% said, no, we can do nothing to decrease the risk of HIV. We had one person in the program area who said the same. So this is really exciting. Yeah. How many people, more or less, are in each of the villages? About 3,000. Yeah, well, actually, it's larger than that. The just the Orbeely, where I, I work really close, is 3,000. The area is quite a bit larger, and so there are probably 10,000 people in the, in the local area. Yeah. So when asked about their concern, as I said, those in the non-program area showed much higher levels of concern. Um, I expected that you'd have greater concern in the area where they showed the program. I mean, that's one of the things we ask, are you more concerned now? Well, in, interestingly enough, they were less worried. They were concerned, but less worried because they could do something. Um, yeah, the literature shows that low self-efficacy, I can't say it right now. That's it. I can say it in Swahili, but I can't say it in... Uh, has been associated with higher levels of anxiety. Interesting. So we can speculate the respondents in our program area feel as if their community has taken positive action to reduce HIV and AIDS, and that non-program area recipients have perceived helplessness to address the problem and therefore are more concerned. So, so often the belief and ability to do something is the pivotal point to action in communities. And we believe that this program really helped them with that. Those who believe they can do nothing, do nothing. Whereas those who have internal and external beliefs and hope that something can be done, will do something to protect the community. So here's some of the, the things that we noticed, um, which were very interesting, because I did ask about um, condoms in the, um, in the study, although they were never mentioned in the video. Um, we can see that those, for married men and married women, women who can um, buy and use a condom in the program area was much greater than the non-program area, even though in the non-program area they identified that as one of their greatest protective measures against HIV. They still weren't using them, and they still weren't able to use them. Whether they, it was the same as whether they could refuse their husband Increased in the program areas whether they could refuse someone else or buy and use condoms with others. So even though we never taught about condoms, those who were at risk and were still having sexual partners out of abstinence and faithfulness, we, they were enabled to utilize um, condoms in their area. We saw able to limit themselves only to their wives. One of the tremendous risks of mouse I have is that they have many concurrent sexual partners. 
um, and that increases their risk tremendously. And women have partners outside of the marriage as well as the men. And so we asked them whether the men were able to um, limit themselves or they're able to limit themselves only to their wives. And we see in the program era a tremendous increase in the number of men who said, yes, we need to limit or we can, we can do it. And of unmarried women, we found the same thing. Esoto is there. Esoto is practice, and Esoto is actually a sexual. Ooh, wow, that was loud. A sexual initiation of prepubescent girls in the community. That's very normal. Um, the warriors, when they are circumcised, get the rights to the cows and the girls, and it's their job to open the door for the future husband. And so, tremendous risk to these young unmarried girls in the community. Um, the church has stood up um, in many places against, uh, against Esoto, um, although Esoto as a word has stopped. The practice has still actually continued in many places. They're just not calling it that anymore. Um, and so, but we see um, in the program areas a significant decrease in the amount of Esoto that's being practiced, the girls who can be protected. And the girls, look at the girls who can refuse Sexuality with the, with the warriors, very, very significant because previously they have no rights to their own sexuality. And even buying and being able to buy and use condoms was higher in the program areas. And for our unmarried men, sexually active, still very sexually active. Interesting in the program area, I don't know if they're, I, I, this is an interesting statistic I don't have any explanation for. Why in the program area are they more willing to say, yes, as a matter of fact, our young men, it's normal for Maasai young men to have many partners? Um, or are they more sexually active? Hard to know. Although, again, able to abstain, we see greater numbers in the, in the program area. So, and greater number who can also use condoms. So let's get to willing to be tested in there. We see a have been HIV tested, a double the number in the program area who've been tested for HIV and willing to be tested is much greater as well. Testing practices, increase in testing practices, again, in the program areas, um, significantly higher, and even an understanding that we can prevent HIV transmission from mother to baby. So... Really, um, counseling and testing for HIV we know is a proven preventative measure. And so the significance is that they're willing to be tested or have been tested, that they've received counseling that helps them to remain HIV positive and so that they um, have greater um, chance of staying HIV positive. Community change. Really exciting to see a community change. 60% said that the community is changing their sexual behaviors. They've stopped sharing blades. Custom changes means a soto stopping. It means multiple sexual partners outside of the marriage is stopping. And some of the other exciting things that we were able to find is the, the ability to make decisions. How do you make a decision that's going to help your family reduce the risk of HIV? And um, in our program area, we found that 59% um, of families had actually made a decision, made a family, had a family conference, and made a decision to stop the practices that would cause them um, risk for HIV. So really 
um, interesting and exciting that they've been able to talk about it within their um, within their family. This is another interesting of who has seen. This is actually yes and no, so we're not in program area, non-program area. This is all program area stuff. And um, interesting that we um, only had 70 out of 100 people in the program area study who had actually seen the HIV video, which is actually really great news because that means even if 30% haven't seen the video, the community change has been higher than that. So the video actually made a difference even for people who hadn't seen it. People who attended discussion, not very many. And yet 59% were able to have a family discussion to decrease HIV in their community. So again, really high impact of the HIV education video if we can say that this made the difference. So anyway, there were statistically significant differences between the HIV knowledge, attitudes, and practices within the Maasai villages who participate in the, in the program. So this was really encouraging and indicated that our intervention was effective and that the HIV video was making a big difference. Um, some of the continuation of the program, because I think we're close out of time, um, some of the continuation of the program is that we were able to get a grant, um, a small, uh, a very small grant, um, received in January of 2012, um, and had a goal of reaching 4,400 um, Maasai over one year. This was an integrated um, program. They were re doing um, both the HIV video and the Jesus film and asking people to commit their lives to Christ and also to, um, to live in his power to reduce the risk of HIV because, you know, changing your life is really hard. The behaviors that have been on generation to generation are really hard to change, and especially when you believe they're necessary um, to be Maasai. And so um, there was a, a solar projection equipment that were donated to Moped, the organization, and a, a motorcycle was donated to them um, so that we could do some ongoing capacity, increase the reach of the program, and see what would happen. Um, so here's what happened. So the results uh, to date was that six uh, presenters have been, uh, our, our expectation, here's our one-year goals, was that we were going to train six people to be able to do this. And uh, we trained six, 4,400 people. Well, we kind of passed that up in the first half of the program, and they've already reached uh, 5,283 people with both the gospel and HIV education. Um, we expected we'd go to 11 rural villages, and they visited 31 and uh, 2,200 people tested for HIV um, has been our biggest challenge um, because we couldn't get a partner to come alongside us that didn't want us to pay for HIV testing in the community. Um, and so we have a new plan, and actually we're having um, three of the MOPED people trained in HIV testing and counseling so that they as an organization can provide it in every place they go. So we'll see... Um, I think in the next year we will see a tremendous increase in the number of people tested because they will have the capacity within themselves and organization to do that. So any questions? What can I, yeah? At this point, is Moppet primarily, is, is it an expat? Moppet is, Mop is indigenous. indigenous Maasai Pat. They are indigenous local members. Yep, and they're out there doing this today without any outside 
Yeah, I, I show up. Oh, I don't have the picture. Of, oh, I didn't have the picture there. Okay, um, I show up every um, six weeks to three months to them, and, and um, I'm working as this year I, I agreed to work as the program manager for their grant so that I would help them to know how to, to um, manage their receipts and their reporting so that they um, would build their capacity to be able to do it by themselves. And at the end of this year, I will no longer be in that position there. Um, they are applying for a grant from the government um, to do this, and I won't be managing it for them because I hopefully have trained them well enough in this year to do it all themselves. Um, they don't need me for any HIV education in the field. Um, I did go back, once we had these results, we could go back to, the to them and help them identify places where the education was weak. Um, we needed to help to, for people to, to really say, you know, we need to make a family decision and help lead families to making decisions, get leaders to commit. Um, also, some of the misconceptions about HIV transmission were still there in the community, and so we had to say, okay, let's, let's talk about the things that do not trans transmit HIV um, so that they would understand clearly. So we made some changes, and I did some training with them um, to prepare them for the, kind of the next phase. But um, they're, on, they're ready. They're on their own. They're on their own. I'm not going to, I'm not teaching HIV out in Maasai land anymore. There's no need for me. Um, they can do it themselves. Yeah. What was the elapsed time between the intervention and your study? One year. One year. Do you have any plans to do follow-up several years out? Or? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could. It's a possibility. Um, but that requires a lot, me to, to engage in, in all the places that they go and knowing all the places they, they go. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to be hands-off. They can do this themselves. And um, if there's a, a follow-up study, I would probably help them to do a program evaluation themselves rather than me from the outside do it. I believe in them. They can do it themselves. That this is what this is all about. Is their video in their language with their stories and their initiative to get it out there. So, you know, the help that we provided was just, um, you know, the funding to get the, the, um, the videographer out there. Um, it took a lot of editing, re-editing, editing again, field testing, editing again. So it took a while to get out there, and that was just, you know, that was time, effort, and, and some upfront funding. But after that, and my, my expectation is they won't need any further, they won't need any further funding from, from the outside other than anything that they apply for within their own government. So, and there's, it's out there. Yeah. The one statistic about the unmarried men, the yeah. one that was kind of funny. Yeah. What, what's your personal take on it? Like, what are, are the, how are the attitudes of the young people? Yeah, the place in, where I'm working, and I did follow up on, on that as well, and the, the young men who committed them, to themselves for, to faithfulness and abstinence, I mean, they'd said, oh, we talked about this before, but we've never done it. We finally did it. As of that day, they have remained faithful to their wives. And, you know, are there, are, are there you know, people in every group? Absolutely. You know, but the attitude, and I think my my honest opinion is I think that they were probably more truthful than the people in the non pro in the non program area because more comfortable with the interviewers. Uh, 
Yeah, and just willing to to say, yep, we as Maasai have lots of sexual partners, and that's, I mean, it's a hallmark for Morani. When I when I did some HIV education with these young men, I cried because it's their identity. I cried when I realized what this meant to them. They were given the girls and the cows. That was that was becoming a man. And to turn your back on that is huge. I mean, having 19 girlfriends is not, uh, it, I mean, actually, when uh, yeah, is nothing. When I did, actually, I mean, I had them tell me numbers, how many sexual partners, guess how many sexual partners that people had. I mean, I had too many to count. I mean, I, the, the numbers were, you know, 100 plus, 60, 50, nobody knows, can't count. I mean, the number of sexual partners that Morani have, guess there are no boundaries around sexuality in the Maasai culture. Uh-huh. How many, what percentage of those came back positive? Um, in, of, of, oh, in 43, when they did the HIV testing, they were not, um, the ones in the, I don't know for people who didn't respond, and I didn't ask them whether they were positive or negative. Among the Maasai that we're working with in Moped now have not had one positive result. These folks, and, and there's another story to that, that um, HIV passed them by. They ca- became believers at the same time HIV was sweeping through their community and they made the decision to be faithful and abstinent before they got sick, before they became HIV positive because what you believe makes a difference in how you behave. Yeah? What kind of um, involvement did the women have? Because it sounds like it's a very male-dominated society. So did you, how did you incorporate the women or did you? The uh, Moppet incorporates the women. Moppet is the indigenous organization, and they have female members as well. Um, we're working in the community. The last session I just gave was on women's cycle of life in um, my use in the Maasai community and how women are um, increasing in, in influence and um, abilities and value in Maasai community, in this community. Um, but they, um, they were involved in, in the making of the video. Their ideas were included in the making of the video. So they were, they were included, and Moped holds women, re- um, regards them highly. Yeah. Anybody else? No? Good. Well, thank you for coming. And, yeah. I hope I have a card here if anybody wants it. And, um, yeah, I hope we are able to use media to help communities educate themselves.